0: invite you to turn in your bible tonight to the book of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 43 Isaiah chapter 43 just want to set in a, a bit of a context uh, Isaiah as you know was a prophet of God uh, ministering to uh, particularly the tribes the two tribes of Judah from roughly 740 until his death in 681 B.C. So that just gives you sort of a sense of where he fits. He's ministering in a difficult time. The kings of um, Judah are... um they're flawed men profoundly, and the religious leaders in Judah are uh, sinful. They're going through the motions, uh, and God sends the prophet Isaiah to warn the people uh, to turn and repent, or God will bring punishment. God will discipline them exactly as the, he said he would in the covenant. And, and uh, we know f- from, his, from the, the story that the people did not repent. Uh, there would be s- small times of revival, but then it would be right back into the same sins and so Isaiah has a very hard ministry. Uh, but in the context of the book of Isaiah, as Isaiah makes these prophecies, there's these wonderful, wonderful gospel promises uh, that, that um, the, the discipline, the punishment is not the end of the story, that God has in the end a word of grace and help and salvation for his people. And we have that in Isaiah chapter 43. Let's pick it up, Isaiah 43. I'm going to begin reading verse 1, we'll read through verse 7. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's ask the Lord to bless His word. God in heaven, thank you that you are our maker. And that tonight you speak to us in your word, just as surely as when Isaiah first spoke as your mouthpiece. I pray, Lord, that we would hear your word tonight, and we would be able, by your Spirit, to see your goodness to us, your promises, and Lord, that we would be strengthened and comforted. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I was reading a a blog post of Kevin Young this. Uh, past week, and uh, he was just recounting there that um, he was recently at a, a, a Bible study, a women's Bible study at their church, and um, a bit of a going away, as you know, he's uh, Kevin's taking a call to Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, so one of the just a time of talk and discussion, and, and one of the ladies asked him about uh, what he had learned in his time at a University Reform Church there in East Lansing, and um, and basically what, what he said is what what he's learned is how much God's people hurt, that over the years as a pastor, you get a front row seat to the, uh, the trials of God's people, um, and, and you uh, begin to realize that uh, behind all the bright, shiny faces on a Sunday morning, there are uh, lives um, where uh, there are often tears uh, and sometimes absolute heartbreak. Uh, In my 20-some years now as a pastor, um, some of the phone calls have been just absolutely heartbreaking, of a young man who had an accident at work, young husband, soon to be a father, and uh, an accident at work, and um, they're taking him to the hospital, but it doesn't look good, and when I got there, he was already uh, with the Lord. Um, You hear of children who um, are stillborn or um, who die young. And um, you hear of um, phone calls of a pastor. I think my my husband is having an affair, uh, or pastor, my child has uh, abandoned the faith. Uh, these are the this is normal uh, life in the church. Um, you hear of um, deeply deeply wounded people from past sins and and from ongoing struggles in their in their relationships, maybe their marriage. Uh, all God's children got troubles uh, is sort of how the saying goes. And and that's true. It is it is true. And God knows it's true because God has ordained these troubles. And that's what we're going to see in our text tonight, that God, that he has ordained. But, but more than that, he makes wonderful promises and gives us a, a fantastic foundation um, to stand on as we live the real life that we live, as we go through the trials and and uh, the rivers that God has called us to. And so we have here in Isaiah chapter 43, is a text that I've read often at a bedside or when I've gone to visit someone. I remember when, when our dear sister Holly Vering was first diagnosed with cancer, uh, and I went and sat with her, I read Isaiah 43. And, um, and it's a text I've used often because, uh, because it speaks such wonderful truth. It, it, it's a text uh, that I realized I've never preached on. And and looking forward to doing that tonight. If you look at the text, I encourage you to keep your Bible open because we're going to try to just stick to the words. And uh, if you even have a, a little pen or uh, something, you can mark your Bible up to, to help you remember some of the things that we talk about tonight. Um, just as I as I start, just want to there are, there are two phrases here that are really essential to understanding the text. The, the first are the two words, but now and then, uh, fear not. But now, and fear not, and I'm not going to take a lot of time on that. But it's um, but now says there's a shift in the narrative. Isaiah has been prophesying about the judgment of God. If you have your Bible, look at verse uh, chapter 42, and you'll 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 see that God has uh, is giving to Isaiah a word for the people that they can remember when the judgment falls. Isaiah's going to prophesy about 100 years before Babylon comes and leads Israel into captivity. Babylon's going to come and destroy Jerusalem, going to destroy the temple, and uh, kill just scores of people and lead the rest into captivity. And, and God gives a word here. When that happens, uh, he wants his people to remember something. Look at verse 24. So let's just pick it up, 23. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat, on Jacob, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. God wants his people to understand when, when it happens that they are not just helpless victims, sort of pawns in the circumstances of world events and affairs. That he wants his people to understand that, that this happened because God has ordained it to happen. Now that might not seem comforting, but actually if, you, if you're in a, a, a place of great uh, trial and heartache and hardship, It is very comforting when everything seems to be spinning out of control to know that it is actually, it is not out of control at all. I remember John Piper once talking about, um, he was uh, early in his days at Bethlehem and he was trying to sort of help the church understand in in a better way. Uh, reformed doctrine or the truth of, the biblical truth of specifically predestination. And so he was going to preach on Romans chapter 9 that morning, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, and, and before either of them had done anything good or evil, so just the, the raw, hard Truth, the wonderful truth, but difficult truth of, of sovereign election, and uh, so he was in prayer about this. He gets to church, and one of the uh, uh, he 's informed that one of the men of the church uh, in his late 40s had uh, passed away that night, uh, completely unexpectedly, had a heart attack early that morning, and um, his wife was at the hospital. Well, he was. He had to go preach, and so he preached uh, the nine o'clock service, and then uh, again the eleven o'clock service. And he and he gets to the pul- the pulpit, and there she is. She's she's in the in the auditorium. And he's going to preach on election. And her husband has just died. And so he, he he for a moment thought about just scrapping the sermon and going with something more appropriate, but but he really didn't didn't know where to go with that, and so he just said, Lord, this is the word we have, and, and he went and he preached it, and after the service, he went and, and, and talked to her, and he said, I, I just can't believe you're here. She said, I, I had to be here. I, had to come. I needed to hear a word from the Lord, and I can't tell you how thankful I am for the word this morning. What a comfort to know that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign. And that's the message that we have here in but now. And, and, and it's wonderful then to know that uh, the but now says that judgment and, and discipline is not the last word. There is, a, there is a but now for God's disobedient children and for his, his uh, children who are in trial. Uh, Eric Alexander says, judgment is always God's strange work. It is in mercy that the Lord delights. He reluctantly brings judgment. He delights to show mercy. And God now comes to his people in chapter 43, but now fear not. That's, That's the great command. Don't be afraid, says it twice in verse 1 and verse 5. It's the only command here in our text. And it is—it is not a command. Uh, it's not buck up. It's—it's it's a comforting word. It, it's spoken the way a mother would speak to a child who has been frightened awake by a nightmare. It—it it functions um, like like just a loving. Shh, it's okay. Don't be afraid. I'm here. You could say that's the central theme of the text don't be afraid, I'm here. That's the tone of it. And it's a wonderful comfort because we do face the reality of fear. All of God's people do. Sometimes from circumstances. Financial issues get tight or or there is some financial crisis. Relationship issues are some of the most heartbreaking things we face. The diagnosis from the doctor comes back and, and and he said cancer. Or, or, or some other disease that's going to be profoundly debilitating and that threatens us with loss or with pain. We all face ultimately the fear of dying. Fear is, 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 is part of living the Christian life. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5, he says, Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Here's the Apostle Paul saying they were, they were afraid. And some of God's people have a, a, a sort of a disposition to fear, a disposition to anxiety or, or, or depression. And that's just part of the, the, the stewardship that that's been laid on them by the hand of God. And, and then there are, the, there are the, the, the devastating tragedies that throw our world into a thousand pieces. These things happen. And God wants us to know that there are, there are reasons for courage and comfort and hope and even joy in the midst of the reality of the life that God's called us to live in this world. And, and so I just have two basic points this, this evening. First, the foundation uh, of hope, and then the promise. So there's a foundation here and then a promise. Those are the two main points. Under the first point, the foundation, we're going to note who the Lord is to us, who the Lord is to us. Secondly, what the Lord has done for us. And then thirdly, what we are, who we are to the Lord. So first, this foundation is who the Lord is to us, what the Lord has done for us, and then who we are to him. And so let's just look at your, if you have your Bible, look at your text, who we are, who the Lord is to us. So, but now, thus says the Lord. These are not just the words of a religious teacher. This isn't Isaiah trying to muster courage in the congregation. He is just a mouthpiece. God himself is speaking. Thus says the Lord. But notice how God identifies himself because he identifies himself specifically in relationship to his saving engagement with Israel. So th- thus says the Lord, he who he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And notice the text ends with that same thought. Everyone who is called by not my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God wants them to understand that their existence um, is, is a creator creature distinction, but it's not just the distinction of uh, that they've been made in the image of God. There's a, there's a distinguishing here. Uh, the, the, the comforting truth is that when, when the text here talks about God making them, f- forming them, that, that, that Israel exists as God's uniquely purposefully created possession, His people. There's a distinction here between Israel and Babylon. All are made in the image of God, but, but Babylon cannot say that God is their maker the way that Israel can. They exist as His Peculiar people, his treasured possession, uniquely called into being by his grace to be his own people. So there's a relationship here of saving purpose and, and design and ownership. In chapter 54, verse 5, God will say, your maker is your husband. Psalm 96, 95 or 6 picks this up. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And then immediately goes to this relationship. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So we are... We are the, the, the clay that, the, that God the potter has taken in a unique, special way to make a vessel to display the glory and splendor of God. That's what these words mean. And what is true, of course, of the Old Testament church is all the more true of the New Testament church. The, the New Testament church is, um, is created. We are His new creation by water and the Word. It's a wonderful... Bastion of comfort for God's suffering people. That we are not... Uh, here as God's people, we didn't we didn't volunteer or sign up. God Himself has taken us and He's and He's created us. He's He's made us and He formed us. And this this term has the sense of of not only did God bring us into existence, but God brought is has brought us up. So if you look at Israel, God is reminding them of all His faithfulness in all the years past when He uh, was with Israel in its infancy, calling Abraham out of Ur into the land of Canaan and and blessing Abraham and Sarah that barren old couple and then, and then being with the patriarchs and then the hard years in Egypt and the sojourn in the wilderness as they were under the discipline of God. But then the conquest of Canaan as God was so faithful and mighty and then the triumphs of David all through Israel's history, God has been bringing them up. And so God reminds them of who he is. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God who has created them. He is the God who has formed them. They they exist in this relationship by God's own sovereign purpose and design. That is who the Lord is. And and so in in our own minds, when we pray to God, we we pray to a God who uh, is is our father's God. A God who, who... All through history has been creating and forming the church and has placed us in that church. And God wants to be known then as the maker of your life. And then God says what He's done for us Fear not. Why? Three things I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, and you're mine. Don't be afraid. Fear not, I have redeemed you. When Israelites heard the word redemption, they would immediately think back to the great exodus out of Egypt. That was the definitive uh, redemptive work of God as as he brought Israel out of the bondage and slavery and death of of Egypt and brought them out and constituted them as his people. They They were bought through the blood of the sacrificial lamb, put on the doorpost. They were a purchased people. And so you see, the reality of that great act of redemption was the defining reality of their life and their identity. They were, by definition, God's own purchased, redeemed people. And so just as he had rescued them out of Egypt, he would rescue them again from Babylon. Their Redeemer would not abandon them. In fact, he would pay a great price again for them. Verse 43 and 4. He says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. That's the purchase price. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. God wants his people to know, even though they've sinned, he loves them, and he um, is committed to continuing the work that he's begun in redeeming them. And and of course, all the redemption of the Old Testament points ahead to the the great redemption that is in Christ Jesus, where, where God did not give peoples in exchange for our life, he gave his son in exchange for our life. We have so much more reason for confidence. We've been purchased, as Peter says, not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot. We've been redeemed by the blood of God's only begotten Son. And so you see, the reality of this great act of redemption is the defining reality of your life. Above all the circumstances of your life, this circumstance is the ultimate defining reality that you belong to God. That's exactly where God goes. I have called you by name. I've called you by name. In other words, God just reminds them of his effectual call, his his saving call, that he called them way back in in Abraham out of of Ur, and he called Israel out of Egypt. His his work has continued. His redemptive saving purposes are ongoing. Uh, Those whom he calls... He also justifies, and those whom He justifies, He glorifies, that redemption is this fantastic process, and every single one that's been called, every single one will be glorified through the wonderful miracle of justification. And there's great comfort here. God wants us to to remember that His calling and His election are sure. Paul says in Romans 11, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. There's not ever been a person who was effectually called by God who did not end up experiencing the glory of God. And he wants us to remember that then we are uh, his people, not by accident, not by our own choice, and again, not just a, a... a twist in, in fate, but, but those whom he predestined, he called. He, he, you are a Christian if you're a Christian because God determined you would be before the foundation of the world. And he calls by name. Isn't that precious how God says that? I called you by name, he says. He didn't randomly call. When, when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't go around town and put up help wanted posters and then interview the candidates. He went to Peter Knowing full well who Peter was. And he says, Peter, I want you to follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And he goes to Matthew, Levi, the tax collector. Knowing perfectly who Matthew was. He says, Matthew, I want you to come and follow me. He calls by name. He called you by name. God knows your name. If you are a Christian, it's not an accident. God has called you by name. He wants you in your trial and he wants us in our difficulties to remember that we are a called people. God has called us. And that means then, you see, that we belong to God. So who we are to the Lord. You are mine. Isn't that wonderful news? The tense here changes, if, if you were just paying attention. So, I created, passed, I, I formed, I redeemed, I called. These are all the great acts of God, in, uh, formed in eternity, purposed in eternity, worked out in the reality of, of time in our life. But, but these, these from these acts, on the basis of these acts, God wants us to, to understand uh, two things that we are his and that we are loved, verse 1 and verse 4. You are mine, verse 1. I love you, verse 4. God, you see, wants us to, to connect these things. That, that These aren't just nice doctrines, the doctrine of election and calling and creating and all that redeeming. What it means is that we belong to him. That that the relationship God has with you is not just a a saving relationship. It is a parent-child relationship. That his call to you was was not simply into salvation, but into the fatherly embrace of a loving, heavenly father. You are mine. That's what a a dad says to his small children when, when they're afraid. And they want to know that he's going to be there and he's going to protect them. You are mine. You see, this is the precious truth of adoption, divine adoption. We're not orphans. God has claimed you as his son. God's claimed you as his daughter. He knows your name. Paul picks up on the wonder of this, Romans eight fifteen. He says, we, we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, father that's the privilege we have that's the thing that God wants us to remember you can say father to the living God and he's not offended he's pleased and then what he says in verse 4 you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you that is really intimate language Maybe if you grew up in a home where uh, there wasn't a lot of sentimentality. Uh, These are words that you didn't hear very often. Maybe you didn't ever hear them from your parents. Uh, God is not ashamed. God does not blush to say to his children, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. He says this to you his fearful child, his struggling son, his, his suffering daughter. And we need to receive it. God is saying it because he wants us to hear it. He wants us to believe it. And you see, it's the inescapable conclusion of everything that he has done. I was listening to a sermon on this text by Reverend Carl Hock and um, did a great, just a fantastic job with the text. But he, he talked about gospel arithmetic. Gospel arithmetic. Well, we've got to be able to add things together and then come up with the appropriate sum. And and, and so he just explained that, that here we have gospel arithmetic. I created, plus I redeemed you, plus I called you, equals I love you. It always equals I love you. I created and formed you, plus I redeemed you with the blood of my own son, and I, I called you to myself, always equals I love you. You are mine. You are precious in my sight. And that, you see, is the foundation that we stand on uh, as we live our life in this world. That's the foundation that God has laid for us. How firm a foundation, You saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more could he say? Then to you, he has said, then to you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. It's a fantastic foundation. It's an unshakable foundation. The calling of God is irrevocable. The redemption of Jesus Christ is once for all. And on this foundation then, God, our Father, lays a promise, a beautiful promise When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. We need to note, first of all, what God does not promise. Because there are so many who assume incorrectly that God promises to get rid of the waters and the rivers and the fires. And there are pastors who, who will assure you that's exactly what God desires. That's exactly what God promises. And if you find yourself in a river, something must have gone wrong. If, there's, if there are flames in your life, you probably have you've not believed enough or you just haven't obeyed enough. You've stepped out of God's best for you. Well, tell that to Job. Tell that to Paul. Tell it to the saints all through the ages who've loved the Lord Jesus and have been willing even to give up their life. You see, this is not a promise that there will not be waters or rivers or fires. God promises actually that there will be. In this world, you will have trouble. He promises that we will. We will walk through the waters of suffering. You will tread through the rivers of grief. And you will do it because that's where the path goes. You won't do it because you've misstepped. You won't do it because you just have this thing about grief and pain. You'll do it because that's where the path goes. All the way my Savior leads me. That's where my pilgrim road winds. And though the Particular circumstances will differ. Every child of God will pass through the waters at some point. And not just once. It's a veil of tears. Every son, every daughter is going to face rivers and flames as we we walk the path that God has appointed for us. For some it's going to be illness. For some it's going to be a, a difficult or broken marriage. For some, a difficult, unwanted loneliness. For some, a devastating loss of loved ones. I think back to my cousin who um, I really actually met in, in college, out at Dork College. I was playing basketball one day, and, a, and, and, and the kid I was guarding stopped and looked at me and said, Hey, aren't you a Van Dyke? I said, Yeah, I had no idea who this kid was. He says, Well, I'm your I'm your cousin. <clears throat> He's out of Montana. I had 96 of them, so I didn't. Couldn't keep track of them all. Actually, he was my cousin's son. Um, Lee was his name. And uh, lived his whole life out in Conrad, Montana. And um, uh, the year after I graduated in 1985, uh, Lee, his, his sister, Pam, was also attending Dort College. And um, her folks were out to visit her, Norm and Gloria. And they were driving uh, past Rock Valley and uh, um, were hit by a, a got kid coming the other way too fast. And, uh, and all three of them Gone. And that was his entire family. And Lee loved the Lord. I remember talking to Aid and Jane, uh, Norm, uh, Gloria's parents. That's my my dad's oldest brother, Aid, and they're both with the Lord now. But um, ten years after that, um, the grief just as raw. And there are folks here who could tell that story, word for word. We are going to face rivers and trials. Uh, we're going to face flames, the flames living in this world and being attacked by the flesh and the devil, either in constant battle with your own besetting sin or, or, or persecution, which is happening to hundreds and thousands of our brothers and sisters this very day. And all of this by God's design. It's a path that He's laid out for us. Every, every turn, every hill, every valley uniquely designed by Him. There's an old gospel song Some of you may remember God leads his dear children along, some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. He does not promise there will not be trials. He promises there will be, but this is what he promises. Two things, two precious truths. I will be with you. That's the key promise. Fear not. I will be with you. With you. It's the first thing God wants us to know. It's a promise of companionship. It's a promise of abiding presence that we're not going to be left alone. This is, you see, this fundamentally in Scripture is why we do not need to be afraid because God is with us and God is for us. And so David would say, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strong rock. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? It's death. Because you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's the the core promise that, that drives out fear. That we're not here by accident and that we are not here alone. I will be with you. And so we can say what we sang: saying, be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. He is near to the broken hearted. God promises, he promises his presence. And the, and the grass withers and the flowers fade, but, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I will be with you. And then secondly, there will be no lasting harm. The rivers will not overwhelm you. The fire shall not consume you. And that's part of the, the, the most profound fear where you're in great trial. There's the, there's the, the devastation of the loss, and, and then and the sense maybe that you've lost your life when the loved one died or when the tragedy happened. That you've, you've, you've lost who you are, your identity, your purpose, your security. And you're alone, and it's frightening, it's overwhelming. You don't know how you're going to survive. And God says, shh, I'm with you. The river's not going to overwhelm you. The fire's not going to consume you. He promises it. And as I was studying this, I just have to say, um, I thought about Holly. And and a, a cynic could say, well, it overwhelmed her. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. God used that in such a beautiful way. And she's victorious with the Lord. And what a testimony her faith was to so many. You see, this is is the promise, and God keeps his promise. We're going to be led through the river. We're going to go through the waters and through the flame. We're not going to stay there, and we're not going to be lost there. We're not going to be consumed there. And that God's going to use this trial that he's brought into our life for our eternal joy nobody is going to be in heaven saying i don't think that was necessary or i think there probably could have been a better way no one's going to say it we're going to be marveling at the wisdom of the pruner who prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it might bring more fruit this is for the glory of god jesus says and it'll be your great joy for eternity The presence of God and the protection of God, that's the thing he promises. If you think about the story of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are a wonderful example of both these things. The king throws them into the furnace, Daniel chapter 3, so hot that the men who throw them in are consumed by the fire, and then the king looks in and he says to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I will be with you, the flame will not consume you. That's God's promise. And we have that promise, friends, sealed in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ, the very one that the king saw walking in the furnace. The one who set them free, the one who protected them from harm, that Jesus has come into this, our world, to join us in the fire so that we will not be harmed, we will not be consumed, we will not be lost. He gave his life so that we would not lose ours, so that we could gain ours forever and ever and ever and he is the evidence, par excellence, that we are precious in the sight of God. You cannot look at the cross of Jesus Christ where he died for you, the sinner, and doubt that God loves you. He loves you. You are precious in his sight. Friends, we need to take this truth to the reality of our life. We need to take it to our trials. We need to take it to maybe a lingering bitterness of some event that happened in your life and it's just been so hard for you to reconcile that event, that loss, that trauma with a loving God. And so you're here and you go to church and you want to believe and you want to have joy but, but there's, there's something that's just sucking the joy and the bitterness is so hard to get past and the fear and the cynicism. Let God speak to you. Let God talk to you in Isaiah 43. And and, and trust then what he says. That whatever the trauma, whatever the loss, whatever the tragedy, the Lord led you there and one day you'll see the reality of it there. And and, and even though you don't understand why it happened, you don't understand all the brokenness that resulted from it, all the, the debris maybe you see that was caused by it. He doesn't ask us to understand all the the outworking of it. But he asks us to believe what he says. I love you. You're precious. You're not here by accident. That did not happen by mistake. But you are part of an astonishing grand story of redemption. And the God who called you is a God who is with you, who loves you, who will protect you and one day present you without spot and great joy into his own presence. This has been the testimony of God's people all through the ages. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to his promise. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he has not, he will not desert to his foes. That soul, that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, God says, I will never Never, never forsake. Trust it. Take it to your heart. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, what a firm foundation you've laid for us in your word. Lord, you know our fears. You know our our deepest wounds and shames and regrets and traumas and tragedies. You know the things that we desperately hope never happen to us. And God, I thank you that you speak into that reality. Lord, we want to be a people who live in faith, and confidence, and comfort, and peace, and joy, and hope, but we need your help. Help us to believe everything we heard tonight, everything that you've spoken. Help us to believe it, and Lord, I pray that maybe tonight would be a release for some of us as we are willing to let God be God and acknowledge that you are good and though the hurt is real, and maybe the wound is still raw, and the fears are maybe still present, we can acknowledge that there is a foundation here that's been laid for our faith, and, and, and it's enough, and it's good, and we're able to be free from the bitterness and the cynicism and the anxiety. Oh God, we want you to be, oh Lord, glorified in the midst of your people. Glorified as we cry out to you, glorified as we trust in you, glorified as we rejoice in your salvation, even in the trials of life. Lord, we don't know what tomorrow holds you do, but oh, we thank you so much that you promise to hold us tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day until Jesus Christ comes again. You will never forsake your people. You promised to hold us in your loving embrace. Oh God, I pray that that would melt our proud hearts and bind up our wounded hearts. Lord, I pray that there would be joy where there was mourning. Gladness and praise. Because Lord God, you are worthy of it. We pray it in your name. Amen.